The reading this morning is taken from uh, the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives and whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. 
So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, or olive groves and vineyards, or flocks and herds, or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. This is God's word. Here's another little strange story. If you are with us just for the first time today, we're working our way through these early chapters of Two Kings, uh, 1 to 8, whereas Elisha, it's his story in many ways, he is the horseman and chariot of Israel. That's his nickname. He's a one-man army because uh, he is the Lord's prophet. So some strange stories we've had. So let me, um, let me lead us in prayer before we uh, look in detail at chapter 5. Hey, great God and Father, we do thank you that in your wisdom you give us these stories. They are strange and they are memorable. And you give them so that we may learn what it means to trust in Jesus Christ. To help us understand that, we pray, so we would do so for our good. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Yes, yeah, so in simple terms, here is a story then that tells you how you become a Christian. You need to get washed in a river, sort of. You need to get washed, but as we saw earlier in the kids' slot, not on the outside, but on the inside. You need to trust in the death of Jesus to wash you clean from your sin. And I think one of the things this story really wants to emphasize for us is that to become a Christian, it is absurdly simple, but it's deeply humbling, and that's why it's hard. It's very simple to become a Christian. You just trust that Jesus, upon the cross, swapped places with you. He took your sin, you receive his perfect life, and therefore all the blessings that are due him. That's incredibly simple. You just got to believe it. That's it. No more. But to believe that is deeply humbling because you're saying, well, I contribute nothing. So it's absurdly simple. But because it's humbling, it's quite hard for many to do. And so as we look at this story of Naaman, perhaps some will follow the same path that he does. Certainly, this is how many people become Christians, I think. Because when Elisha told Naaman what he needed to do in order to be cleansed or cured, he, well, he did three things. He lost his temper, but then he lost his pride, 
and then he lost his leprosy. I think many people, when they encounter Jesus Christ, do the same things. They lose their temper. What, what do you mean? I'm not good enough for God. How can you, what can that mean? That my life is unacceptable before him. And they get a bit irritated. They lose their temper. But if you lose your pride, then you can lose your sin. He'll take it all and the punishment for it. As I say, these early chapters of two kings, God's people, Israel, are in a terrible state. Uh, the majority of the population that they've given up on following the, the Lord, the true God, and they're chasing after other gods, fertility gods, particularly uh, the god Baal. And uh, I scribble down at the bottom of the page, probably in too small a font for anyone to actually read it, but I think the section goes a little bit like this. So Elisha fights for the nation. There's a sort of sandwich in chapter 3 and in chapter 6. You come in a lair, Elisha miraculously provides for the few faithful Israelites. We looked at that last time. In chapter 6, 1 to 7. At the heart of the, the narrative, I think, is this chapter 5, when Elisha provides cleansing for a hostile foreigner. And the point of that, I think, is the main thing from all of this that we're meant to take away from chapters 1 to 8 is that God's forgiveness, his offer of being cleansed from sin, it's open to anyone, no matter what you've done. Or it's open to anyone who's willing to humble themselves. The bar is not too high. Actually, for many people, it's too low. They just won't get down and crawl under it and say, help. I want to look at it this way. Um, uh, three of the characters, I mean, two are much more significant than the other, but um, we're going to look at it like this. A little child becomes a great man's teacher in one to eight. Then a great man becomes like a little child in nine to 19. Uh, and then there's a further contrast where Gehazi, a privileged man, becomes an unclean leper. Okay? A little child becomes a great man's teacher. A great man becomes like a little child. And then a privileged man becomes an unclean leper. First, the first eight verses, a young child becomes a great man's teacher. Now, what do we learn about this um, uh, a little contrast you get here. What do we learn about Naaman? Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He's a valiant soldier. So he's a war hero. He is the, the, the key general. He's the one that everyone knows. He's the Eisenhower of the war because he has brought victory to Aram. Therefore, he's deeply respected by the king. He knows he's the military genius, fated by the nation. You know, in 1815, after Wellington had conquered uh, uh, Napoleon, he was, the, he was the, the most famous man in the world. If you go just next door to Apsley House, you see all the treasures that the King of Prussia and the King of Prussia showered upon Wellington. Everyone knew he was the, he was the hero, brackets. Well, I almost lost the war, but anyway. Anyone, everyone knew, but so he just gets thrown wealth at because he's the great military general. Well, that's Naaman. Oh, but he had leprosy. Oh. Whether it's the same diseases today, we're not entirely clear. As the footnote will tell you, leprosy can cover a whole range of skin diseases. But there's a problem, clearly, for him. This is the thing that's ruining his life. Now, if you're a Bible reader, you get to this point in the narrative in chapter 2 Kings, you'd have read through the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 
Leprosy is a picture in the Bible of sin. It's a skin disease, yes, that's how it manifests itself, but it's a disease internally that manifests on the flesh. It's a disease that spreads through the body. It's a disease that contaminates you. You can't be near the presence of God. And therefore, it's a picture of sin, which is internal to us. It spreads through us, and it cuts us off from the living God. That's somewhat how leprosy functions. And so here is a great man, but he's got a big problem. But then next to him, we meet this little girl, verse 2. Skates over what must be a tragic scene. Chapter 5, verse 2, now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. Oh, I mean, there's, there's a depth of misery in that little half verse, isn't there? A young girl ripped away from her family, staying with people she doesn't know, learning a new language, captive to be a servant, lonely, no doubt. Yeah, maybe think little... Les Miserables, little Cosette, you know, there is a castle on a cloud. You know, she's lonely. But the whole narrative turns on this girl's testimony. There's the contrast. You've got a great man, verse 1, and you've got a young girl or a little girl. Well, but anyway, the little girl, she says to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria. She knows all about Elisha. He would cure him of his leprosy. Well, this is heard, and um, the advice is sort of half taken. Do you see that? Verse 4, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Well, that's a lot of money. So the girl says, then what, what, what Naaman needs to do is go and see the prophet Elisha. And so Naaman and the king say, right, we're going to go to the king of Israel and take him a lot of money. I did a quick look on the, uh, uh, the markets. And in the middle of the week, this was worth just shy of well, about 2.85 million pounds uh, that he's taken with him and 10 sets of clothes. Not because there was a shortage of pants and socks in Israel, but these are probably elaborate, you know, gilded garments worth uh, an enormous amount of money. So he's taking a lot of cash, a big gift with him into Israel, but he's going to the wrong person. So verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Well, he's not, but of course, if you've read chapter 4 of 2 Kings Do you remember last week, if you were here, that's precisely what God had done to the Shunammite woman's son, died and brought to life. Can I do that? No, of course I can't. Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? Well, Joram, the king of Israel, is probably a bit alarmed. So Aram, who has invaded him previously, has sent his key lieutenant demanding healing from leprosy. Is this some sort of ruse to take us to war? Um, No, it's not that. Before she, Elisha turns up and says, no, 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 he brings some sense to it. Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message, why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he'll know that there is a prophet in Israel. So you have Naaman, a great man. You've got the two kings, the king of Aram and the king of Israel, 
They don't understand it either. They don't get it. Only a young girl understands that God is working through Elisha. Therefore, that's the person you need to go and see. There's the one who can bring you life. So it's not the main point of the narrative at all, but just in passing, it is worth noting the, the smallest, the, the, the most timid, unimportant believer, well, she can see more clearly than the great men in this narrative. And the smallest can point the greatest to meet the living God. Maybe think a little bit of a girl who was here a few years ago. Uh, Joelle was a school teacher, unassuming, timid, quiet as a mouse. How are you, Joelle? Very, very, you know, would always, you know, very shy. But whenever we did anything, church doesn't get the honest questions course for those who who aren't believers. She'd bring her head of department and her deputy head from school, because very timidly she'd say, I I think you should come along to my church. I I think you'll meet Jesus there, and he's who you're looking for, actually. Not much more than that. But there's this little girl. A little child becomes a great man's teacher. Then by contrast, you get a great man, that's Naaman, he becomes like a a young child in 9 to 19. So Naaman goes, um, he, uh, they've gone to Samaria, to the capital, and they then go and visit uh, Elisha's house. So verse 9, Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. It might, must be quite a scene, I'd imagine. You, uh, a load of tinted limousines are turning up outside your flat, uh, wherever you live in, uh, in London, uh, with an entourage of men with their microphones and their guns tucked in. You know, this is, this is Naaman, he's a great man. He's the key lieutenant and he's in enemy territory. He turns up with the beast and uh, parks it outside. And he's expecting, you know, something quite impressive, of course, to happen. But verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, uh, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you'll be cleansed. And Naaman is furious. Verse 11. Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he'd surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over this spot and, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the, the rivers of Damascus, where I've come from? Are they not better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned off and went in a rage. Look, I've traveled a hundred miles from Aram to Samaria, and now there's whoever he is, Elisha, who won't even come to the window. He says, go and travel another 30 miles to the Jordan. The Jordan, well, I've been there. It stinks. We've got much better rivers at home. Why would I do that? I wanted something dramatic. I wanted the prophet to come out and, you know, roll up his sleeves and, I wanted, I wanted drama. I wanted, I've heard he does big things, this Elisha. Go and wash in a, goes off in a rage. You see, Naaman has an idea of how he wants to be cleansed. He sort of daydreamed about it. What did the man to come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God? I I thought, I had this scene in my head, how it was going to play out. And it wasn't like this. This is absurdly simple. This is deeply humbling that I have to go and wash in your smelly river. 
well, happily there are more servants on hand. And they say, well, they see more clearly. Often the humble do have more insights than the exalted. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, a term of respect, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? Well, how much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Master, if Elijah had come out of the house and said, climb those mountains, you'd have said, yeah, that's a challenge, I'll do it. If, if Elijah had come out and given you something dramatic to do, if he'd given you the, the labors of Heracles, if he said, go and slay the Aramean lion, go and destroy the Cretan bull, go to the underworld and kill Cerberus, you'd have said, yeah, I'll do those things. I like a challenge. I'm Naaman, give me a challenge and then heal me. Brilliant. If it'd been something impressive to do, you'd have loved that master. But he's just asked you to do something absurdly simple. And you don't like it. Why not give it a go, Master? Why not at least try? And so he does. In verse 14, So Naaman went and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him to. But very unusual for, uh, you get this very unusual thing here, um, Normally in, in, uh, in any Hebrew you get prophecy and to show that the prophecies come true you get the precise words repeated. You get a little bit more here. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. His flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Well, that's just the same word as chapter five, verse two. The young girl, it's just masculine version, feminine, but the same word. A young one with different endings on the end. He's become like the little girl. How extraordinary. But do you see what's happened to Naaman? He's, well, he lost his temper, but then he did lose his pride. And now he's lost his leprosy. And he's become like a child in his faith. Well, let me say again, that is often the process that many will go through in order to become a Christian. Because for most people, they quite like the idea, if there's a God, if there's a God, I quite like the idea of, I achieve something to be acceptable to him. I quite like that. Uh, something that I achieve and others don't. I quite like the idea that there's a threshold, a bar, and I can jump over it and others do not. I like that um, because it makes me feel good about myself. I like the idea that um, my achievements get me into heaven. But the question is, well, if the Lord was to ask, have you achieved something worth entry into heaven? Most of us would say, yeah. Yeah, I've done something worth getting into heaven. My, maybe a dramatic gesture, maybe just my, my giving to charity, my parenting, my, the way I treat my friends, whatever it may be. Yeah, I, I've done something worthy of getting to heaven. And of course, the Lord says, no, you've not. No one has. Not one is worthy of getting into heaven. You think there's a bar that you jump over it's not. There's just a bar that's very, very low. 
and you just crawl beneath it on your knees, you say, I can't achieve heaven on my own. But I'll trust your word, Lord. You read the pages of the New Testament and say Matthew 18, Jesus would say, unless you come to me like a little child, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you come like one saying, I've got nothing to give. I just need you to give it to me. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here for Naaman, Naaman was told, go and wash in a smelly river 30 miles away. And he says, well, that's, that's it? I just jump in the river seven times? That's it? It's too simple. It's, it's silly. And for you and me today, the Lord says, trust that 2,000 years ago, my son died upon a cross. And he'd pay for everything wrong you've ever done. And he will give you eternal life. Well, that's, that's it? My achievements count for nothing? No. I just trust that someone died for me 2,000 years ago? Yes. It's, it's too simple. No, it's very simple. Absurdly simple. But deeply humbling. Naaman's response, this comes in verse 15. I think he's genuinely now a believer. Verse 15, Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there's no God in all the world except in Israel. He'd come looking for the prophet. I need the prophet, it said Naaman. And Elisha said, I'm not going to see him. I'm going to send him miles away from me. So he knows it's not actually me that's anything special. And Naaman gets this because he comes back and doesn't say, whoa, Elisha, you really are the big man. You really are a real deal. I'm so impressed with you, Elisha. I mean, I was a bit uncertain, but look at me. Cling, look, look at my skin. It's like, you know, it's like I've had Nivea for, for, for months poured into it. It's fantastic. He doesn't say that. He says, there's a God. There's one God in Israel who's God of the whole world. Extraordinary. Oh, please accept a gift from your servant, he says. Let, let me give something back in response. But Elijah refuses. The prophet answered, verse 16, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, oh, come on, take something, something for yourself. You know, there's some money here. It'll do, do good for the, um, you know, there aren't many of you genuine believers. Come on, take some money. I'll take nothing from you. Because, Naaman, I, I need you to understand this. The cleansing, the forgiveness that the Lord gives is free. You contribute nothing. You contribute nothing before he gives it. And you contribute nothing afterwards. It's free. That's grace. It's all him. It's a gift. Naaman persists. And some people um, are a bit upset by verses 17 and 18. You, the commentators can't make up their mind on what they're to do with Naaman in verses 17 and 18. I think I'm a bit more generous to him than some. 
What's going on here, verse 17? If you're not, allow, uh, not allow me to give you a gift, not accept something. Verse 17, if you're not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for you. Can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, May the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. And of course, people get confused. Well, what's he saying here, Naaman? Look, uh, look, I'm going back to Aram, and there are no other believers there. So look, I'm going to bow down to these other gods every now and again, and I have to do that, don't I? Will you just forgive me for that? And people get, well, you know, it's a bit half-hearted. He shouldn't compromise. Look, I think in context, Naaman's going back to Aram. He's the only believer in the whole of the country. He can't be going to a church service. There is no such thing. And so he says, look, I'm going to have a chance to speak for Yahweh. I've got to be involved in some sort of national ceremonial occasions. They are a bit odd. Look, I will, you know, my master will lean on me and he'll bow down to Rimon. And, you know, I have to do that. But in my heart, I don't want to do that. And look, I'm going to take this earth back and set up an altar to Yahweh. I mean, there's all sorts of confusion going on here in his mind. But I think the fact he even asks the question and he asks for forgiveness, it shows he's not understood everything perfectly, but he's got a sensitive conscience. And the most important comment on it is that of Elisha's. Verse 19, go in peace. I'm not going to criticize you for that. Say It's a particular model for the Christian today. But Elisha doesn't criticize him here. And so I don't think we should either. And in truth, actually, in this whole little section, verses 15 to 18, Naaman gets a lot more right than the majority of the Israelites in the whole of two kings. Naaman says, there is one God, I'm going to serve him alone, and I know I need his forgiveness in an ongoing sense. He gets that. That's a lot of stuff to get right. More than most of the Israelites. And that's why you get the contrast with Gehazi. So there's Naaman then. A great man becomes like a little child. He loses his temper. Not so good. But then he loses his pride. And he loses his leprosy. It's a model for you and me. If you lose your pride, say, look, I can contribute nothing, but I trust in Jesus alone to put me right with God. You can lose your sin. But then there's a contrast as we finish uh, with Gehazi briefly. And a privileged man then becomes an unclean leper. Now Gehazi, he, I mean, he's, he's a privileged bloke. He's working for, so he's got Gehazi, he's working for Elisha, the great prophet. Elisha was the bagman for Elijah. Elijah left, Elisha gets the job. So Gehazi's got to be thinking, when Elisha goes off the sea, I'm his bag man. It could be me. You know, I could be the prophet. I mean, he's extraordinarily privileged position that he's in here. But there's clearly something wrong with Gehazi, verse 20. Gehazi, the servant of, after Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought Now, look, maybe it's just as simple as greed. But I think he just doesn't actually understand the message of salvation here. You see, in verse 20, he says, As surely as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. 
very similar. Back in verse 16, when Elisha speaks, Elisha says, verse 16, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I'll not accept a thing. Naaman says, as surely as the Lord lives, oh, there's something missing. He doesn't say, I serve him. Uh, I'm not sure he has a personal trust, a personal faith here. I'm not sure Gehazi's a believer, really. And so verse 21, uh, you get this whole succession of uh, deceit and lies. Verse 21, Gehazi runs after Naaman. Is everything all right? Verse 22, yeah, it's all right. Gehazi answered, and then he just tells a complete lie. Two young men from the company of prophets have come. Can, you know, it's, you know, Elisha doesn't want anything for himself, but there are these others. It would be good to support them. It's a plausible lie. So a talent of silver and two of your sets of glorious clothing... Naaman, of course, he's, he's naive. Yeah, of course, you take more than that. Uh, yeah, verse 23, he urged Gehazi to accept these talents, tie them up in two talents of silver and two bags, two sets of clothing. The servants carry them. Uh, verse 24, Gehazi, he obviously knows he's, he's guilty. So when he comes to the hill just outside Elisha's house, look, you servants disappear. I'll, I'll take the stuff and, and, and hide them away in the house. Let's not make it obvious that something dodgy's gone on. And verse 25, Gehazi comes before Elisha. Elisha asks you, where have you been, Gehazi? Flat lie, your servant didn't go anywhere. Verse 26, Elisha knows. Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Now, this is an interesting question. Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Is this the time to take things from someone? No. No, Gehazi, now is the time to show a watching world that God's forgiveness, God's cleansing is completely free. No charge. That's what we should be telling people, showing people. Uh, Gehazi, that's why I refuse to take anything. And so verse 27, what do you make of this? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. What do you make of that? Severe? Harsh? Well, I think the point here is, it is a very, very serious error to tell anyone that to be forgiven, to be cleansed, they contribute. That is really serious to get wrong. The message that God's cleansing, God's forgiveness is completely free. His grace comes with no strings attached. Don't mess with that message. You mess with that message, you can stop people being saved. You're stopping them humbling themselves before the Lord. You just don't do that. It is an enormously terrible thing to get wrong because you're distorting the message of free grace don't you do that don't distort that message the lord brings gives cleansing and forgiveness of sins through jesus christ with no charge it is free don't add we try and put it this way this is a bit daft but let me put it this way um 
Mark Zuckerberg, he's had a slightly tricky few weeks uh, with uh, Facebook. Imagine, it's a thought experiment, not true in any sense, okay? Um, but imagine, uh, it emerges, well, he's had one or two problems because he's had his eye off the ball. Because actually, he's, all he cares about is this one massive philanthropic project. And he's poured all of his time and all of his resources into one project, But anyway, it's gone a little wrong, a little awry, and so uh, next week he declares himself bankrupt. $60 billion. He's just blown it all on one bit of research, and he has to sell off some of his houses and cars, his collection of grey T-shirts. The whole lot uh, has to to be sold off. It's extraordinary. What's what's he done that's cost all this money? What's he been wasting his money on? And then the following week it comes out that clinical trials have ended... And they have produced a cure for cancer. Medically, a real holy holy grail. And the clinical trial, and it works for all types of cancer. Just one medical drug, no more chemo, no more radiotherapy, no more multiple drug treatment. Just one thing. I mean, this has been a holy grail for, for, for decades and decades in medicine and science. So there's enormous excitement. And in the press conference... The journalists ask, one asking, or so, obviously, question we want to ask you, how much are you going to charge for this? Well, he could say $1,000 a treatment. Well, that's going to save the country and every nation millions and billions of pounds. 1000 for just to treat one individual rather than all the surgeon's time. And, well, that's what a wonderful gift. He doesn't even say that. He says, no, it's for free. This is my gift to the world. For free. Well, that's generous. But can you imagine the consequent scandal if it was discovered that people were then charging for it? This man has spent $60 billion to produce a gift for free. And then people were being denied access to it because they wouldn't pay. Well, that would cause outrage. But of course, more than that, the living God says, look, I've not wasted money. I've given my son. He's died. So that anyone who puts their trust in him can be forgiven for free. Don't you add to it. Don't you dare tell people they have to do more than put their trust in Jesus Christ. Don't add to it. Because that's why there's a reformation. Because at the time, in the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church is saying, yes, God gives you grace, but then you have to earn your place in heaven. He's given you the resources, now you earn it. Or to flip it the other way around, why Mormons today would say, um, if you work really, really hard, then God will give you enough grace to get to heaven. I mean, they put the things, it's kind of the opposite way around. But both those examples are saying, yeah, God gives you a start, but you've got to work hard. Don't you say that. Don't you dare say that, says Elisha to Gehazi. The grace of God is free. No individual contributes a thing to their forgiveness, a thing to their being cleansed. To become a Christian is absurdly simple. You just trust that Jesus died for you. It is humbling. And that's why some find it Hard. So the issue for you and me, look, even today, have you done that? 
He said, look, I, I despair of anything that I've done to contribute to me being acceptable to you, Lord. The only way I can get into heaven is by what Jesus has done, full stop. I contribute nothing. Have you humbled yourself? It's absurdly simple. But it does mean you can be cleansed of your sin, forgiven forever by what God has done. Let me lead us in prayer together. Our Father, once again, we thank you for this strange story which drives deep into our thinking and, and we pray into our hearts the generosity of your grace that you cleanse us of our sin, you forgive us uh, uh, just by a word, just by trusting in the death of your son, Jesus Christ, just by that simple act. It is absurdly simple. So, Father, would we humble ourselves and keep on humbly admitting it is by him and him alone that we can be cleansed and know the certainty of heaven, that we contribute nothing? Would we never compromise, distort that message in any way and add to it? But would we be those who continue to hold out a message that it is free grace? Jesus has done it all. And that is a cause of enormous relief and thanksgiving and joy once we've humbled ourselves to accept it. Would we keep on doing that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.